Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. we got a special show today. I've got Joseph A. McKelly on the line, and he has written eight books, including a, uh, would you call that a, a children's book or an educational book for kids? I did, yeah. No, I did. A, it was more of a parenting book. Yeah. Okay. It's uh, about how to parent your, your kids with uh, humor and play and laughter. So that's long ago when I was functioning much more as a clinical psychologist. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's, that's interesting because, you know, I'm looking at, I've got a stack of books here, folks, and we're going to be talking, uh, you know, about each book, but we're also going to be talking about uh, how to read them, what order, which is the best one for whatever. But just going a quick looking through the books here, you know, only one of your books you've slapped your PhD on, which is uh, Prescription for Excellent Excellence. Why... Um, why does that one get the PhD? <laughs> well, in general, whenever you put a PhD on a book, it normally means it's going to be a boring book. <laughs> um, so that's your that's your warning sign. And when I first uh, got started in the business, um, I think I wrote a book about the Pike Place fish market, which you may not have. Uh, and I had a PhD on that one. And that was a different publisher. And then McGraw-Hill said, from now on, let's keep that off of there. And it turned out it got onto the Prescription for Excellence book because it was co-published by McGraw-Hill and by a, a healthcare publisher who thought I needed more gravitas with a healthcare audience. So it's always fascinating how that decision gets made. I'm Joseph. So as far as I'm concerned, it's not doctor and it's not PhD. It's just Joseph. So, um, you know, a lot of your books are about uh, customer service, um, how that is critical. There seems to be a real big upswell in books about um, how important customer service is and, and understanding the brand experience is probably the most important thing that you could be investing in. Um, a lot of your books are about uh, larger brands like Starbucks or, or the Zappos book and then um, the Ritz-Carlton hotel uh, book. Uh, but then the prescription for excellence is a little bit different. W which one did you write first? I mean, we, let's talk about the order that you wrote them in and um, how writing uh, one book and then writing a second book and then a third book, it changes the way you write the next book and the next book and the next book. Wow. You know, first off, Bob, I just want to thank you for this. I mean, I think very few people have even contemplated how to help people read a, an author's work. So this is uh, pretty interesting. And it, I've never been faced with these questions before. So um, I'll bumble around a little bit. But, you know, I started I started um, in this series. I mean, I ended up doing a book, a co-author book with the owner of the Pike Place Fish Market. So that was probably the first business book I wrote. And, um, and that was, you know, just as a result of having known and worked with the guy who created this great fish market in Seattle, Washington that became pretty famous through a series of videos about how to engage your employees by using the fish philosophy. So, so I'd gotten involved in writing that book with Johnny. I co-authored it. I wrote it in his voice. 
um, captured his wisdom and genius and, you know, kind of shared some ideas about how to make a great business happen. So that's where it all started. This is 2004, approximately, that that book uh, was being written, probably released around 2006, if my memory, you know, holds. But the interesting point of it all is we were talking about customer experience and how they threw fish and did all these antics in Seattle, Washington, that made that fish market stand out from all the competitors. And we were, t- we were talking about all this stuff. We never called it customer experience. There was no name for it. Um, this industry really came on strong thanks to a book by Gilmore and Pine called The Experience Economy, where they made a case that we're no longer in a product-based economy anymore. We weren't even in a service-based economy anymore. We were literally living in a time when service wasn't enough and we needed to embellish service with all kinds of other aspects that would emotionally engage customers. And so suddenly we had a name for what we were writing about. And and I think even as of the time I wrote a book called The Starbucks Experience, very little had been done to create an industry called customer experience professionals. And now we have all these customer experience professionals and customer experience practitioners. Uh, We have customer experience officers in business. So uh, I've kind of watched my career grow up with a burgeoning industry of customer experience expertise. Hmm. Um, Where do you think customer experience or the concept of customer experience was born and evolved? Was it an East Coast or more of a West Coast phenomenon? You know, I I think what what happened was there were certain businesses who realized that doing it right and making it right weren't enough to win the business and they had to do something different. And they were just small pockets and a lot of entrepreneurial businesses. I think Starbucks, when it got started, essentially, you know, Howard Schultz said he wanted to get as far as he could, maybe down all the way to Portland, Oregon from Seattle, Washington. If he could, you know, succeed at that level of regional success, he would make it. And I think he knew that in order to win the Seattle coffee market, he had to do something different than just have the best product available. Um, and I think he went to Europe and he saw what coffee you know, shops look like in Europe and the incredible savoring of coffee that happened and the romancing of the coffee bean that happens in, in Italy, for example. And he decided he wanted to bring that back to the United States and infuse this common product, a coffee bean that's been with us for generations of centuries. You know, people have been eating it uh, with whale blubber probably back in the prehistoric-ish times. <laughs> um, and, and you know, so he really wanted to add something to this ordinary product to make it an extraordinary um, experience. And I think that's, it started in just small pockets, you know, East Coast, West Coast, here and there. Um, but I think that it's now to a point where, you know, we know 92% of all leadership teams globally are trying to address customer experience as a priority. It's just how do you get it done and what does it mean? And so all these books have been an effort to show how companies are succeeding uh, to inspire action for the individual to make a better business, whether they're entrepreneurs or in an established company. Hmm. Okay. So it, it sounds to me like you wrote the Starbucks experience first. Yep. And then you've got another one called Leading the Starbucks Way. Now, What's the time difference between those two books and are they ones that you should read in that particular order or should you read uh, Leading the Starbucks Way first? 
Well, it depends on what your current need is, I guess. Mm, you know, from mm. a, you know, the leading the Starbucks way was done as a story of transforming the brand back to its soul. So it probably is good if if you really want to tie them together to have read the Starbucks experience first. But you know, I can tell you my evolution as a writer probably does affect the way you should read these. So, so the Starbucks experience is, in my opinion five principles that apply to anybody's life at work or otherwise. So I got a bunch of artists writing me saying, I read the Starbucks experience and they really inspired me to do certain things with my art. And then I got a bunch of churches that were contacting me and say, we read the Starbucks experience and we're trying to increase the, the number of people who attend church and we're trying to make our church more like a Starbucks experience. So thanks for writing it. And, and I kept thinking, wow, I didn't write this for artists or for <laughs> churches. You know, I'm not sure how this applies, but um, but then I started to look back at it and it's not a real detailed book that tells you here you have to do this you have to do that and you know, here's how you measure customer engagement it doesn't do any of the kind of mechanics of it it's much more philosophical and I think it's much more anchored to stories of people at Starbucks who had had incredible experiences or baristas uh, the people who serve coffee at Starbucks and what they did to really connect with customers and so it was more about things like how to be genuine, how to be authentic. Um, you know, what does it mean to really be considerate of another person when you're engaging them? And so it was, a, I think, a more kind of a softer read that has a lot more story and inspiration to how to really stand out and distinguish yourself through service. So if you're looking for more of a, you know, not the mechanics of something, but more of a higher level inspirational read. Probably the Starbucks experience is relevant no matter when you read it. Uh, if you're going to read something about how to transform a business that has been doing fairly well but's lost its way and needs to get back to the core things that got them to the dance in the first place, Leading the Starbucks Way is probably a good book. It's a real transformation. It's Howard Schultz going back with his leadership team and saying, hey, we've lost the smell of coffee in our coffee hot shops. We're not making great espressos right now. We got to get back to the art and craft of coffee making. Um, and we got to look at all the decisions we made to scale that may have taken away some of the soul of our brand. So if you're looking for that, leading the Starbucks way gets you there. But if you're just kind of getting into this or you want to be a little easier reading at bedtime, I think leading the Starbucks way is not the book for you, but uh, the Starbucks experience is. Interesting. You know, leading the Starbucks way, there's uh, a lot of the clients that I'm ending up working with recently are kind of in that same headspace where they've had their company for X amount of years, they're doing well, but they just feel that something's missing. The, the, the get up and go is gone and they really feel that they need to get more motivated. They don't know who they should be approaching. They don't know um, how their sales scripts should be used because they've really lost the wow part of the company. So do you think that's what Starbucks was going through too? And do you think a lot of companies these days are kind of reinventing themselves or going back to the basics because we're coming out of the uh, recession style economy that's been around for the last 10 years. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of things. I mean, oftentimes we fall in love with the things that got us where we are. They, the past becomes a trap, you know, and, and I have a chapter in, in uh, leading the Starbucks way titled honor the past, but don't be trapped in it. Um, and it really starts with the story of Polaroid, you know, and Polaroid 
was a brand that began in 1937, um, and it really had its heyday through about the late 1970s. And during World War II, there was a guy by the name of Edward Land who created a camera that could process a photograph in minutes, and it was really uh, he was basically using it as a defense. Con he was a defense contractor at this, the time, and being able to have an, an image in a few minutes gave some real advantages when you were you know contracting a war during World War II. They could see the deployment of the enemy troops and all of that stuff. And so not only did it have a great military application in 1937, but it had some really exciting applications in the post-war time when people were taking pictures of themselves and they could see them, their pictures instantly. And, and it was really their success. And 40% of their, you know, their research and development budget was, was looking forward. So they were looking at things like digital technology and they had a lot of patents on digital cameras. They just knew how much of their profit, something on excess of 65% of their margin, was linked to the Polaroid uh, image. And so they did not go forward in exploring all of the exciting options on digital. They didn't believe that consumers someday might want an image that didn't have a piece of paper attached to it. And so you look at brands like that in Starbucks and a lot of other companies, I'm sure you work with it. That what got them there, they're reluctant to let go of because it was important. Um, but being able to know how to ride the wave of the products and the service delivery options that get you there and still transition, you know, right now to millennials. I mean, what do millennials want is a very different question than what does the core of our business that got us here want. And figuring out how to live in both worlds is part of what Starbucks had to go back and do in this book. Hmm. You know, it's interesting mentioning millennials because there are a bunch of uh, business books coming out right now. It's like managing millennials or how to manage if you're a, a millennial. And um, I've got a, a very bad feeling that this word is going to get way overused and people are going to use, uh, they're going to lose the plot uh, with the values. So that aside, do you think that people are losing the plot with the customer service angle that it's it's still as popular as it uh, was in the past is it growing in popularity are companies feeling it it is just as important or even more important now uh the customer angle or i think the shot i think the short answer really is that, that a lot of the concern i have is that technology becomes the be-all end-all to this conversation so you know, and, and that's partly driven by a younger generation native to technology. But, but it's also just this notion that all of us like the convenience of technology. And so sometimes uh, customer experience is relegated to the IT department to come up with streamlined apps and, and technologies to do you know, away with things that might have been handled by humans and done manually. So at some level, that's a critical part of the conversation about customer experiences to expedite and integrate technologies that make customers' lives easier. The problem I have is that sometimes that's the end of it. And if you look at most of my books, you realize that technology has to play nicely with people. Uh, Zucker, you know, Zuckerberg recently came out and said that he thinks there's going to be a world of artificial intelligence in the future that will ultimately 
ultimately assure us that we need very few humans to deliver any kind of service. Um, and, and I think, you know, he's right about most things. I hope he's wrong about this. There's plenty of recent evidence from research like Accenture, which suggests that people are having a backlash to all this technology. And when they want a person, they want a person. They, you know, they appreciate having all the technology when they select into technology. But when I want to talk to Bob, I don't really want to talk to an artificially intelligent version of Bob. Um, you know, I want to talk to you and, uh, there's something about you, your essence, that's going to matter to add value to my life in a way that no technology could. So I think that that's the risk we have right now is that people have reduced customer experience to a, uh, an app and that's part of it. Mm. Well, it's all, you know, the, the more we look at something and study it, the more we kind of get a bean counter style attitude and you say, well, we could, we could make this more efficient. We can make it more streamlined. We can make it more perfect. And what they don't understand is using humans and doing the human interface is incredibly inefficient. It's flawed, but that's what makes it human. And if you have something like an app, it's great. It does it right every time. But if the person that's experiencing your brand only experiences it through social media or through an app or through your website interface, they're missing the human part of it and they don't have that human connection. And that way, the problem is, is that somebody that does a better job at the technology side of thing, uh, they may you may lose them as a customer. You might actually lose the ability for your brand to stand out in the crowd. So I think the human touch and, and the, 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 the human psyche and logic behind a lot of the, the theories and, and ideas and, and processes in your book has to be in place and can never be replaced by technology. Yeah, and I've just, you know, I've been reading a lot lately about, you know, not only the backlash in, in, in customer research, but there's a, there's a phenomenon called the uncanny valley, which I think is just fascinating. I mean, right, let's assume we can get a, an artificially intelligent robot that looks just like you, Bob, in every single aspect. It's got the right skin tone. Maybe it's even replicating respiration so that when I'm interacting with a clone, uh, artificially intelligent Bob, um, I end up with something so lifelike. It's crazy how lifelike it is. The reality is that that creates what's called the uncanny valley for most consumers, which is that, oh my gosh, it's so close to lifelike, it's creepy. And, and I don't know what it's, I mean, I know how Bob thinks as a human or the kind of things that affect a person. I don't know what might motivate, cause this thing to run amok. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but the more it looks like a human, the more uncomfortable I get with it. So the more these uh, artificial intelligent options come about, I mean, even robots, I mean, unless we make them into cartoons or we try to not make them look like people, there's a, there's a resistance to that. So I just think in the end, we just want people, real blood coursing through their veins kind of people at times to be service providers to us. Uh, because we understand how people operate and we want them to understand how we operate. Well, I, I think also with technology, um, it takes time for, the, for you know, the general public. You know, you have your, your early ad adopters and then you've got the 80% chunk and then you've got the last, you know, 10% that never get into it. And it just takes time for people to, to figure it out and feel comfortable with it and then just use it. Uh, without thinking about it, you know, you look at some of the old art um, from way back in, in the 1906 and 1910. Back then, it was like shocking and people could not 
figure it out, and they were very angry about that art. Today, that same art is considered tame. It's like, oh, yeah, like an upside-down urinal. I mean, that's so obvious. Back in the day, it was a shocking, shocking show. So I think the same thing with technology. The problem we have right now is technology advances so incredibly fast. We don't have uh, the luxury of sitting back and, and absorbing it and, and just choose, okay, I'm going to have this telephone and I'm going to use it and I'm going to master the telephone and then I've got all these apps and I've got to pick 20 apps. I'm going to master those 20 apps. No, I mean, you don't have a chance to do that. And Bob, you know, the beauty of what you just did in that whole example is what I think I live to do in my books. I mean, you know, to take an example from art doesn't seem in, on its face, right? Like intuitively, how, what does art have to do with adoption of technology? But it, there's such an easy extrapolation from that lesson, right? That, that we really as societies have to slowly warm ourselves into concepts. And then once we're warm to them and we've adopted them fully, it's like, these have never been. I mean, of course we need these. Um, and, and I think that's what I try to do in my books. You know, maybe you're not Starbucks and maybe you're not, you know, you're not uh, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. But there are things about them that if you can pick apart and find their application to your life, you're going to get a jump start over those who don't get this awareness, right? So uh, for me, having the awareness of how we've adopted to art and how it predicts the way we function as a society has great application to business. Well, hopefully finding out how the Ritz-Carlton delivers an incredibly elevated customer experience can help you extrapolate for your own business to do something in your dry cleaner or in your car dealership or whatever business you run. Now, I want to backpedal here a little bit and talk a little bit about you. When did you realize that you loved writing and you decided that writing may be a, a, an option for a career? Gosh, you know, I, I still don't even think of myself as a writer. You know, I read people like Thoreau and Thoreau had to write. Like he woke up in the morning and if he didn't write, he, was, he, was, he might as well cut up his arm, I think. It was just an <laughs> essence thing. For me, I've always been fascinated with how things work, how to make things work better. So I'm more of this inquisitive soul who has to figure out this stuff out because I have to help brands do it. So I think what I found is I had to capture that somehow so that I could share it. And so I share it in a lot of different ways, but capturing it in a book is a good version of the long form of how to help people do it. So I try to do it in blogs or try to do it in podcasts. I, I try to do it from the stage. You know, I try to do it in a boardroom or in a training session. I mean, I'm always trying to just capture it and share it. So for me, I think I'm just a, a kind of a chronicler. Uh, not a writer. And I found that I wanted to do that after I got to tell the story of Johnny Yokoyama in the Pike Place Fish Market and some of the work that we'd done together. And and um, I've been wanting to tell stories of, of people who figure it out so we can learn from those stories. Hmm. Do you think that uh, stories are the best way to uh, disseminate knowledge so uh, the human brain is able to, to take it up and, and visualize it so they can reference it again? Oh, gosh, yes. You know, and I think, you know, a story and image. I mean, uh, and I think sometimes we paint stories with words. We paint images with words. So to me, you you are the master at helping people understand kind of the visual, you know, marketing power images that are going to help their brands. And and I, I try to do the same with a story uh, to depict the same imagery. Do you think the concept of story, storytelling is re-evolving and, and re-emerging as probably 
uh, the tool of choice uh, to try and get your brand across, try and get your core message across internally and externally within a large organization? Yeah, I think if you're going to have lasting impact, you have to get to story. I think, you know, the art of being able to get something that catches people's attention in 140 characters or with an image or with a five second or nine second viral Vine video, whatever it is. I mean, all those things are really important. But I think once you peel back off of that, okay, I got your attention now. Do you want to know more? And if they do want to know more, to have a story that causes them to be able to hold on to it and inspires them to think of its application in their own life. I think that is an art. And it's always been. I mean, I think we are storytellers. We are generations and generations primitively surviving thanks to the stories and epic journeys. My my daughter just sent me a paper that she's working on on Antigone and asked me if I would proofread it. And I was thinking, oh man, I still remember Sophocles and Antigone and the battle with Creon. I mean, it's all in my head from 30 years ago, you know? And so it was kind of uh, nice to visit those characters again. And it just speaks volumes. I mean, that's Sophocles telling his version of the Antigone story. So, um, yeah, I think we're, we've, we've been dealing with this for a while. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that we're able to uh, recount stories and really get the essence of what's being communicated through the story and the ability to re-reference a story years later um, is very similar to uh, a thought house or a memory house where if, you know, it's one of these techniques where you can remember people's names by... Uh, have an associated story and associated visual with that person's name and you remember orange, oh, it's Frank Gibson. Now, how your brain gets around to that, it doesn't really matter. It just seems to work. And I think that's why stories are so effective. It, it enables the brain to uh, put this logical sequence because we're very visual people you know, with our dreams and, and uh, how we think back what happened during the day. It's all sequential. So a story kind of takes out a lot of the the chaff, the stuff that's not really interesting. Like I stubbed my toe going to Starbucks, but then I, I, I got into the store and I had this coffee and it was amazing. And then I went and did my job. And, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff like getting in the car, fighting with traffic, getting out of the car, getting into the office and then doing the presentation. You remember because it had a great Starbucks coffee, did a killer presentation. Everything else is kind of irrelevant to getting to that point of the plot. And um, I think that's the that's the art of great writing is the ability to take out all the stuff that's boring and uh, putting it in an entertaining and educational way. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, how much time are you spending trying to simplify the message and, and, and simplify uh, your your chapters and then paragraphs and then sentences so they flow as effortlessly as possible. Well, I, I spend you know a lot of that time. Unfortunately, I'm always under deadline. And what you'll know with authors is that we could have done it better if you'd have given us another week, right? Because we'd like to obsess about that sentence one more time. <laughs> you know, if we could just recraft it, give me one more chance. But unfortunately, editors uh, at the publishing houses have their crack at recrafting your stories. And within my brands, obviously, I, I let that get read over by people who whose brand I'm representing to make sure that it sounds like what they is accurate to the facts. And so, you know, a lot of people get their hands in the stew and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always comfortable with it, but I think that story is a great conversation thing to have. I mean, I, I, um, was, I encountered a founders of a brand called beta brand and they basically had this idea. And I think they were just sitting around getting drunk one day and they decided what kind of crazy idea would we have? And they, 
came up with this idea of a, brand, a product called quarter rounds. And it was just this silly idea that instead of having the corduroy pants with the corduroy stripes going down, they could go horizontally. And if they created that, they would just create this different kind of product. And, and, and so they made this idea up and they, they articulated the idea and somehow it got picked up by a major publication and they didn't have a prototype. They didn't have a product. And all of a sudden, you know, they had a website. And so people start sending in orders for this and they start taking the orders without a product. And so while they were making the prototype and creating the product, they literally were sending a daily email to everybody who ordered the product and they told them a story about their product. They said, well, unfortunately, uh, today your product is just uh, arriving with, uh, you know, in, in Malaysia. Um, but unfortunately, it, it got stopped by customs and it's and they kept making up these exotic travels of these non-existent pants. Right. And they lost virtually nobody. Uh, in terms of this for the months and months it took to actually fulfill the order because in lieu of a product, they created the product of story and they just – people had something to tell at their their cocktail parties and they tweeted about the non-existent pant journey across <laughs> the planet. <laughs> and and finally, they had the product. They sold it and now this company is a, is a very reputable clothing – uh, you know, platform, crowdfunding uh, clothing platform that said, you know, over a hundred garments funded by the the groups that, um, you know, are, are buying them. Dress pants, yoga pants, they have all kinds of crazy products. It, it's just story can can get you a long way, even in the absence of product. When you're planning on a book and sitting down in, in front of your computer or, or your notepad, what's the first thing that you do? Well, first thing is I say, you know, I kind of breathe deep and say, this is about them. This is about a reader, right? And um, you need to think about who your reader is and you need to think about what do they need to know about this company that you personally have already decided and the company has blessed you to, uh, to tell the story of. What do they need to know of all of this stuff that you've collected about the company and or you know, you know about because you've worked for them. Cause I've consulted like the Mercedes Benz book. I was a consultant for them, for example. Um, and so, you know, what do I know about them? And more importantly, what does a reader need to know to make their lives better? And so that's the first thing you have to always visualize your reader. When writing for, uh, and this is for the writers in the audience, because you know, everybody writes, they write emails, they write reports, they write, uh, maybe they even write books. Um, there seems to be a, a real huge disconnect with the concept of, oh, I'm going to write a book to actually getting the book out. It's, it's a very, it's an arcane process. It's been around forever. Um, do you think it'll ever change that style where you dump, you perfect, you put in order, you send away to somebody like an editor or, or a copy editor and they kind of tidied up and, and decide, well, actually, these chapters have to go in a completely different order. Um, get the darn thing together and then start formatting it and then realizing now that you've formatted it, it's like, oh, hang on, I'm seeing all these other mistakes and this doesn't work and i got to work on this chapter. So is that process evolving for you? Is it is it more streamlined these days or, or is it basically the same? 
Well, I think, you know, there's definitely a trend in the industry to self-publish and to be able to auto-publish right up on Amazon. And there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and I think what you're seeing is, you know, with that a potential to do more serialized books where I do chapter one today and then, you know, I send it out to readers and, and they wait for the next, you know, sequence, kind of like some of the podcasts that have been really successful, like Serial or even the Netflix video, you know, Making a Murderer, which is just a sequenced release of different chapters of what could otherwise be a book. So I think you're seeing more of the serialization and people getting smaller bite-sized chapters and people waiting for the next installment. I think that will be the future, um, kind of more just-in-time publishing and based on the bite-sized uh, appetites of audience. You know, clearly, we see an increase in the number of digital books and digital downloads. So sometimes books don't even have to get into physical print form anymore, which cuts down much of the production time. You know, I can write a book and you know be done in February and it won't release until November because of all of the all of the steps that are taken to create interior design, to edit, to fact check, to do all those things, and and then ultimately get them to a you know place that can print them in their final galley proofs and and then go from the galleys into final production. So there's a lot of steps and then you have to bind it and all of that. So, um, but yeah, I think the, the physical book will always be, and because there will always be a need for people to tangibly have books in their hands to sit in it next to the beach with, um, I think we're going to continue to have much of the same process involved. Um, but I do think we have some technologies now that have made it a lot easier for me to review drafts and, and to approve drafts in ways I didn't have, you know, in 2004. I was reading an article about, uh, the, you know, the sensationalized headline, of course, but uh, big backlash where people want to read real books that are, you know, printed, blah, blah, blah. Um, do you think that um, e-books have, have, are going to be less important in the future or they're going to still evolve into becoming more and more and more important? It's going to be genre dependent. I mean, for example, romance novels have had a huge rise with ebooks because you can carry one of those on a plane. Nobody knows what you're reading, right? I mean, you don't have to have this trashy romance novel cover uh, of Fabio or something, you know, <laughs> uh, obviously giving you away with what you're reading. Um, so there are some areas where it's been really important. Um, in our in the business sector, it's about 25% of book sales for my books, um, and I think that's fairly consistent industry wide. What what you see is that people buy these books and they give them out to all their team members. Books are a great thing at the end of a conference to have you know given out to everybody who participated in the conference, signed by the author. Something nice about having a book signed by the author. Um, so I, I think they're going to be around in the business. They're also used as references more in business. So I don't just like read them and then I decide I'm never going to have to look at it again to find out where that, you know, what did Michelli say in the new gold standard about that questionnaire to measure customer experience? I mean, it's harder to do on a, on a Kindle to use as a reference book. So yeah, I think you're going to see different applications and different genres for me in business. I, you know, I am amazed at how many business books we still sell. I mean, I'm, I'm not complaining. I just, I, I thought that we were going to see a real shift to the online. And I know publishers did a real shift. I mean, like in the old days when you would do a publishing contract, they'd give you all the rights on the on the ebook and they'd give you incredibly generous royalties on ebooks. Nowadays, not so much. But um, but I, we haven't seen the big mass exodus that I was fearing. What do you think about, you know, your style of books, which are, you know, basically designed for people that are already in business uh, not in schools. Um, do you think schools are 
are they are they putting out students that are actually helping business, or is it that we're getting a lot of people coming out and uh, they have to be basically educated or re-educated um, to so they don't have this entitlement problem of like, hey, look at I've got an MBA, so make me a big time manager and pay me a ton of money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think there's always going to be that generational awareness of, you know, you probably have to earn your stripes before you're fully able to take over the job of the owner. Um, but but realistically, I'm very impressed by business schools. I think they've changed. I was just at the Wharton School of Business presenting about two weeks ago. And um, I think there's a real difference. I mean, there was a time maybe it was a little more academic and not practical. Nowadays, I see a real edge toward a lot of executive pr MBA programs that are very much dedicated to people who already have a lot of knowledge knowledge, but have gaps that they need to be competitive. Um, I see education being really relevant. And frankly, my books tend to get uh, picked up uh, in business schools. And I can tell you, I can normally tell on Amazon by a review. There's two reviews to my books. There's kind of the independent uh, entrepreneur and or middle manager who reads a book. And, and they're normally kind enough to say, you know, I found a few things in here that were valuable to me. Not everything was perfect. It's not, you know, the best book I've ever read, not the worst book I've ever read, but I got some good stuff out of it. Uh, and it helped me where I was because I was looking for something. And then, then I get these other reviews, which are my professor required me to read this stupid book. So uh, <laughs> you know, you definitely, you know, you have the people who I think are open-minded to finding value, and then there are those who feel that it's being imposed upon their intellect. So um, I don't know. I, I mean, I just genuinely think business education is doing fine in America. Um, I'm worried maybe about earlier education. Uh, because I keep getting pressured to write to a lower level at, you know, in my books and to, you know, there's that the test, you can now pretty much run any, any text through a filter and it'll tell you what the reading level is of that book um, or that article or that podcast. They're, they're online uh, opportunities. You can just put any text in it and it'll tell you what the reading level you're writing at. Um, and, and so and sometimes it's built into software programs. Um, but I can tell you that I get more and more pressure to, to dumb it down. Um, so I just, I've resisted it. I'm sometimes criticized for writing above the reading level of the average person. I just don't think you ever read better by reading, you know, less complicated things unless it's Hemingway maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think newspapers are written at grade six level that way that people can get through the story quicker and they don't have to be pondering specific words. Um, you know, I used to work with an amazingly talented writer and he would throw in a, a weird word every now and again. And I remember he was describing uh, uh, a fish dinner and, and he called it a, a Philip. And I said, oh, he spelt it wrong. Finally, I found a mistake and I changed it to Philip. But then I got nervous. So I went to him and I said, hey, I changed this to Philip. That's okay. He said, no, it's Philip. And I said, what do you mean? As in it glowed and had an essence of its own. I said, dude, come on. The, nobody's going to know that. They're going to think it's a typo because of the the where it is in in the text. And you know, he he insisted that we put Philip in there. And yeah, I don't think it's anybody's goal to confuse or befuddle the audience. I think sometimes it is a goal to not dumb it down and to at least stretch occasionally. I mean, I don't like to read books where I have to have a thesaurus next to me, right? But I do think occasionally a word that that is elevated can be an important thing for us to just be exposed to because. Somebody's going to say it in your lifetime. It'd be kind of nice to have had the opportunity to think about it. Yeah, well, I, I think that's the problem with dumbing it down is if you dumb it down, all you're doing is you're creating a scenario where you're going to have to dumb it down even more in five or ten years because nobody's actually challenging their brain to learn new words. And the reason you read a book is to exercise your brain 
and to learn stuff. And part of learning stuff is getting a larger vocabulary so you can explain things more eloquently and with a little bit more clarity. Yeah, and, I, and again, it's a balance. You know, it's like all things. You know, it's, it's just about... I just don't think that goal should be to make it too simple. Um, I mean, I think you should make it clear, but not necessarily simple. And sometimes clarity does requ require us to work a little for it, too. Well, you know, do you think that's the job of, of uh, writers is to take the complexity of, of our world and basically retranslate it into something that we can absorb in a way that we can learn? Because... Like I said earlier, a lot of the details being taken away. Well, I just wish I could capture what you just said. I'll have to go back and listen to this again and, and just write that down. Because, I mean, that is my job every day. It's, it's your job every day is to help one another take the complexity of the world and manage it effectively in, in the pursuit of success. And, and, and sometimes that's to inspire us to do that. Sometimes it's to, to take best practices and apply, offer them up to us so that we can do it. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. We're all trying to survive this veil of tears as, uh, as we've come to know it uh, somehow. And, and for me, it's a beautiful world that we live in. And, and I'm so excited. You know, I, I, I often say I'm not the guy who writes the story of why Enron blew up. That's not my thing. You can learn a lot about why Enron blew up um, and what we should never, ever, 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 ever do in business. However, that's that isn't that's not who I am. I like to catch what's going right in the world and playfully spark people to do something great in their own lives. And that's all I ever try to do is, is repurpose great ideas in ways that people can, can get access to for their business success. Do you think there's uh, such a thing as an original idea? No, not, <laughs> I mean, maybe I, Uber seems kind of innovative to me, but you know, I, I mean, somebody could argue that Uber was the idea of using technology to come around pain points that we commonly had in an experience with taxi drivers. So is it an original idea? Not the idea of making it easier by removing pain points, applying that technology to that setting is. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind of think we've been around so long that all the ideas have been generated in one way or another. It's more figuring out how to make them applicable to the setting that you're in. I totally agree. Well, I, you know, I would look at Uber as a reinvention of, of the cabbing system. And then the cabbing system was a reinvention of, of um, people not being happy with the bus system or whatever. I completely agree. That's exactly it. So do you think books are still an original idea then? <laughs> no, but, but some things don't have to be original. Some things need to be familiar and, and institutional. You know, I, I think that reading and writing are familiar and comfort and, and in, you know, that they're going to be an institution. Books are, books are a little tired, I think, in the sense that people are looking for other ways to get information and books take a long time. It's like golf, you know, golf's an institution, but who has four hours every week to do it, right? Um, it's just, I think there's, there's still a need to have some of these things in our lives. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't give up all my books. If you told me right now, I want to take every book you have in your house. You can't have access to books, but don't worry. You're going to be able to read short articles uh, or short stories. I would say, great. I love that too, but I can't go give this up. There's a deeper dive that I need to have uh, in some areas of my life. 
Well, especially if you're reading books for an entertainment value where, you know, my, my, my biggest problem is finding new books that I'm going to enjoy because I've read so many books that it's got to be a pretty well-written book and it's got some pretty sophisticated humor built into it that will entertain me. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I read uh, When Breath Becomes Air most recently and, and I thought, wow, you know, what a wonderful book of inspiration about a guy, you know, a neurosurgeon and his life journey to understand distinctions between mind and brain. And I'm thinking, man, if you tried to do that, I mean, it's short enough as it was, if you'd have done it in any shorter period of time, I'd have been just craving so much more. It would have made me sad. I'm reading a book called All In from a lady who's um, in Canada who has been part of Dragon's Lair. Um, forgetting her name all of a sudden. I just spoke uh, on stage with her recently. She owns a marketing firm up in Canada. Um, and I love this book about entrepreneurship and, and how you have to be all in and why it is that you know people look at entrepreneurs as obsessed by their business. I mean, these books, they, they're my life. I mean, I don't know what I would do without them. So yeah, I think they are, they're old ideas to have a book, but it's a kind of familiar friend I like to have around. <laughs> I think also that, you know, it, it's um, the the movies that we see and the stories that we read um, are written by people that love books. I mean, I don't know too many writers that hate books or, or despise books as, as a like in paper format. Um, so you see things like on Star Trek and a super future uh, type of uh, story premise that books are a special coveted thing and they'll have a classic like Moby Dick and it's actually printed and they, they spent tens of thousands of dollars uh, or credits back those day, uh, up in the future uh, for the right or the privilege to have a printed book that they can admire um, even though they probably read the book on screen more than they would have read it in paper format. So do you think because of that and writers perpetuating this concept of, of the value of books and the value of printed pages, it's something that's always going to be part of our society as we move into the future? I, I would hope so. I mean, I think you're you're right to predict that much more of it. Our lives are going to happen on screens that we carry with us and we have access to all of the knowledge, um, you know, through the screens and the fingertips. Uh, but I, I don't think we can, you know, do away with libraries, nor do I believe we're going to be able to to get books out of our system. I think they will always have a place. And if I'm wrong, I'll probably be dead by then and, and, and it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I think for sure in my lifetime, um, books will continue to play an important role in our society. Hey, folks, um, this is uh, the end of part one. This is going to be a two-part series. And uh, I've been having a fantastic time the last 45 minutes chatting with Joseph Dr. Joseph to some. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, he's he's got a lot of books out there. Eight. Probably next year there'll be nine. You never know. Uh, so, uh, you know, stay tuned for part two. And uh, just wanted to thank you, Joseph, for, for spending so much time with us so we could uh, get all this wonderful knowledge. Well, I think, you know, it's inspiring for me to be a part of this conversation. I hope others who are listening can find something in, about their own lives or, you know, either a book or a story or, you know, some vision of how they can communicate in written word. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.